a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Man, I cannot believe another week has flown past. I swear every week is going a little bit faster than the one before. Nonetheless, welcome to the Friday edition of The Brian Hyde Show. I'm Brian Hyde. Just thought I'd let you know. And I'm glad you could join me today. By the way, thanks to my sponsors who make this possible, including MonticelloCollege.org, also ClimbingUpward.com, LifesavingFood.com, and TMCP Nation. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast with my friend John Harvey. So, got some fun stuff to talk about. I actually have a couple of things that I know are going to uh, push some people into the discomfort zone. This is going to go beyond uh, the 3 by 5 index card of what most people would consider approved opinion. But uh, we're going to think a little bit outside the box. I'm just going to warn you up front. Some of this is probably going to push some people into some territory where they might be like, "Mm, I don't know about this. It's okay. I just want to assure you, you don't have to agree with anything that I'm sharing. I have no expectation that, oh, the only reason you tune in, of course, is because you're going to hang on every word I say. And, you know, I just, I have so many answers. Nah, I'm just a guy trying to figure it out. I'm trying to present uh, information that I hope you find useful and sometimes humorous, but for the most part, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort it out myself. And by the way, I want to thank those of you who take the time to send articles my way. If you see something that's interesting or something that you say, hey, this, this, is, this could make a pretty good topic for your show, you know, feel free to pass them along. By the way, you can do that through my website, thebrianhideshow.com. If you go to the show notes, you'll see there's places you can leave. Uh, you can leave a comment. You can actually contact me. There's an email that'll forward it to me. Very, very simple. I thought I'd start out with something a little bit humorous. I just I saw this th- earlier this morning, and it kind of made me laugh. I, I don't know about you, but uh, yesterday in Idaho, apparently uh, a federal judge said, nope, you cannot prevent so-called transgender athletes from competing in girls' sports. And, of course, the left is having, you know, kind of a heyday. Wee! Oh, look at this! Inclusivity wins! And, you know, it's such a great thing. And, you know, and the, the rest of us, the normies, you know, we sit, we sit here and we go, man, we are just determined that uh, no one is going to be allowed to live in reality. And the transgender female who wins the next state powerlifting champion uh, championship is going to, you know, be celebrated as if uh, he is a real girl. Look, I'm not trying to make anybody's life more difficult or miserable, but there are very few places in my life that I can claim as my own. My mind is one of those places. And that means I'm not going to leave reality just because someone says, well, that's the inclusive thing to do. What are you, some kind of hater? No, I'm just, I'm a person who is going to own his worldview and I'm not going to be bullied into being co-opted or drafted into somebody else's fantasy. However, as serious as that sounds, and it sounds like, well, you're getting kind of worked up into a rant here. I want you to hear, <laughs> I want you to hear this, uh, this is a, a, a little video I found on Twitter of a guy who's figured out how to make this work for himself, particularly in the workplace. He just, uh, he identifies as, uh, well, he's, he's someone who has mastered the system. Give a listen. 
He'll tell you how it works. My name is Ernie Whitaker. My pronouns are I, me, he, him, she, her, we, they, us. Sometimes I even use Shakespearean pronouns, which are thee, thou, thy, thyself, and ye. I'm transgender, non-binary, gender conforming, gender fluid, just to name a few. As you all know, the trans movement is the fastest growing movement out there, so I figured, why not get involved on the ground level and use it to my advantage? For instance, whenever I'm late to work, which happens a lot, I'm not gonna lie, I just self-identify as translate. Not translate like the language translate, but you guys know what I'm talking about. That's someone who's late, but identifies as being on time. I thought of that one myself. Here's his boss. I'm not gonna lie, it is uh, challenging having somebody like Ernie in the office, uh, but due to diversity requirements, uh, we have to have he, him, she, her, we, they. Don't forget about us. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, yep. The absurdity is, <laughs> it's mildly amusing, I guess, unless you're one of those on the receiving end of a stern talking to from, you know, uh, HR about, uh, you know, not towing the line strongly enough. Crazy, crazy stuff. All right. Having said that, I want to dive into a topic here that uh, is kind of near and dear to my heart, and that is, uh, you know, the the preamble to the Constitution. Thanks to Schoolhouse Rock, my generation can recite the preamble to the Constitution absolutely by heart. And if you don't believe me, let me let me play a couple of bars of something for you and tell me that this doesn't stir some memories. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this now, if you didn't get goosebumps while you're listening to that, uh, you better check your heartbeat. I mean, especially if you're a Gen Xer, um, that will bring back so many memories. But all you had to hear was the first couple of bars of it, and I bet you knew every word by heart. But by the way, I just can I take a second here? I'm just going to go off on a little tangent. Schoolhouse Rock which uh, premiered, I think, in the, in the 1970s. We used to watch this between cartoons, of course, on Saturday mornings. Still, I consider this uh, one of the best teaching aids about uh, some of the basics, about civics. And, and, you know, the funny thing about it is you think, well, the 70s, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of political upheaval, and there was. But somehow, it didn't find its way into this material. In other words, it, it didn't become some kind of woke indoctrination vehicle, you know, that, uh, that angsty people could use to manipulate the minds of children. Very, very different from today. Nonetheless, what the preamble, I thought, was, what, what, what came out that was very interesting here is that the preamble, of course, most of us, you know, would know. We learned it in school. Would you believe it's the least important part of the Constitution? Yeah. Mike Meharry, writing for the Tenth Amendment Center and risking stepping on some toes, poses uh, the, the question of, uh, of, you know, whether the preamble, you know, is really that important. Now, this is not to dismiss the Constitution in general, but he says, most people are familiar with the Constitution's preamble. A lot of people were required to remember it in school, or to memorize it in school, rather. 
But while the preamble, he says, is arguably the best known part of the Constitution, it's actually the least important. Now, here's his thinking. Like so many other parts of the Constitution, many people today believe that the preamble authorizes all kinds of federal power that it never authorized in the first place. He says, for all of its poetic beauty and the sweeping principles it highlights, the Constitution's preamble doesn't actually do anything. So you could cut the preamble completely out of the Constitution, and it wouldn't change the makeup or the operation of the federal government one iota. That's because a preamble doesn't grant, delegate, or restrict any government power. Now, here's the lesson. He says, in a legal document, a preamble does not carry the force of law. In fact, Black's Law Dictionary describes a preamble this way. Quote, a clause at the beginning of a constitution or statute, explanatory of the reasons for its enactment and the objects sought to be accomplished. End quote. That's pretty straightforward. So while they don't confer any power or carry legal force, preambles do serve a purpose. They act as a key to open the mind of the makers. In other words, the preamble is not a source of substantive rules, but a statement of assumptions and purposes that sheds light on the main body of the document. So Mike Meharry says in the simplest terms, the preamble serves as a guide to on how to read a constitution or a statute. They identify the parties to the legal document, recite crucial facts related to the document, and explain its purpose. And from here, the Constitution's preamble serves all three of these purposes. And while the preamble reveals the why of the Constitution, which was to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, it doesn't tell us how the new governmental structure will accomplish these goals. So he says, and again, I can't emphasize this enough, while the preamble outlines the broad objectives of the federal government, it does not confer any authority to the government at all. He says, the structure of the government and the delegation of powers follow in the articles of the Constitution. And then he goes into some, uh, some examples. In fact, we'll come back to this on the other side of the break. But I, I just, I'm so grateful for his explanation. Frankly, I haven't heard a great explanation like this in quite a few years, ever since uh, uh, my mentor, Stephen, uh, sorry, Stephen Pratt, his last name escaped me for just one moment. Uh, not since he passed away, but he used to explain. It's a compact. That's a legal contract with multiple parties. That's what the Constitution is, and the preamble explains who those parties are, what they intend to do, then the rest of the document actually calls the federal government into existence. Why is that important? Because that means it's subservient to the states. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sorry we're starting out on a bit of a civics lesson today, but I think this is a great one, courtesy of Mike Meharry at the uh, 10th Amendment Center. So he talks about how the structure of government and delegation of powers follow in the various articles of the Constitution. The preamble tells us what it sets out to accomplish, but as far as getting into the meat of what does it mean, well, Article 1, Section 8, for instance, assigns specific enumerated powers to Congress. Article 2 delegates specific powers to the president. Article 3 establishes the authority of the judiciary. 
Without the delegation of powers that follow, the preamble is nothing but a poetic list of objectives with no mechanism to carry them into effect. That's why he says you could cut it out of the Constitution and the Constitution still would would be able to stand. Now, the point here is that most Americans don't understand this. They believe the preamble empowers the federal government to take any action conceivable to achieve the Constitution's stated objectives. And as a result, they point to it to justify all kinds of unconstitutional federal actions. They believe that the federal government can do anything and everything to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, to secure the blessings of liberty. And of course, conniving politicians take advantage of this ignorance. In fact, politicians began abusing the words of the preamble to justify federal actions almost before the ink was dry on the Constitution. Defenders of the Alien and Sedition Acts appealed to the preamble, claiming it supported federal laws that criminalized criticism of the government, ignored due process, and assumed power over immigration that was not delegated. Now, James Madison dispensed with their arguments in the report of 1800. Madison said, quote, They will waste but little time on the attempt to cover the act by the preamble to the Constitution, it being contrary to every acknowledged rule of construction, to set up this part of an an instrument in opposition to the plain meaning expressed in the body of the instrument. A preamble usually contains the general motives or reasons for the particular regulations or measures which follow it, and is always understood to be explained and limited by them. He says, in the present instance, a contrary interpretation would have the inadmissible effect of rendering nugatory or improper every part of the Constitution which succeeds the preamble. End quote. Boy, the founders had a way with words, didn't they? So the preamble is like the introduction to a book. It gives you the general idea of what the book is about, about rather, but you would never write a book report just by reading the introduction. That is, if you care about getting a decent grade. So Mike Meharry says anyone trying to justify this or that federal action through the words of the preamble almost certainly hopes to expand government power beyond its constitutional bounds. The preamble tells us a little, but it doesn't reveal a lot. So people need to keep those well-known words in the proper context. Powerful stuff there. By the way, you might find that useful if you uh, have the opportunity maybe to, oh, I don't know, teach younger minds to understand what the Constitution is and what it isn't. I don't spend a lot of time talking about the Constitution. Probably should spend a little bit more, but um, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but when I say this, it's, it's because largely the Constitution has become a dead letter in the sense that in no way does it threaten the expansion of government or does it uh, threaten inca- accountability on the part of people within government. They still find a way, they shop around, or they find some judicial activist judge who's willing to, you know, do the mental gymnastics necessary to, to find justification to expand power in whatever direction they want to expand it. That's sad. And I think uh, Mike and the other guys at the Tenth Amendment Center would probably back me on this. The idea here is that uh, if, if the people themselves, meaning you and me, through our elected representatives at the local and up even to the state level, if we don't hold the federal government accountable and politicians accountable for abiding by the upper limits on their power, then we only have ourselves to blame. I want to say it was Judge Learned Hand who talked about the, the enforcement mechanism of the Constitution isn't written on paper. It's what's in the hearts of the people and what we're willing to put up with. 
and the further we've strayed away from the plain and simple meaning of what it is, the more the people who have held the reins of power have been able to get away with. So, please don't mistake what I'm saying as any kind of disrespect for the Constitution. I'm just sad to see that, as, as Lysander Spooner pointed out so many years ago, either it was written in such a way to allow what has happened to happen, or it was powerless to prevent it. I tend to lead to lean towards the, the, the latter explanation. It was powerless to prevent it because we, as a citizenry, started to take lightly or to take for granted things that we should have taken much more seriously. I don't know what it'll take to turn that tide. I think most of us are probably going to have to feel some significant pain and discomfort and possible loss of freedom before we start to realize, oh, 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 okay, I get it. This is why it matters. But we're still comfortable. Yeah, everything costs more. Jeez, I filled my car up today and was like, oh, this is from half a tank and it's it's hurting. But you know what? There's still a lot of stuff on TV and I got food in the fridge and, you know, there's lots of distractions. I understand it's easy to to get focused on other things. All right, I'll jump off the soapbox here for a minute. Here's a thought, too, and this might step on a few toes, but it's a commentary that really made me think, and it's the idea of, is it necessary to prove what's self-evident? Now, this harkens back to the Declaration of Independence, kind of. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What exactly did that mean? Well, this article in particular is by Robert Curry. It's on AmericanThinker.com. And, you know, he's, he's holding to account somebody who I actually look up to quite a bit. That's Dr. Peter McCullough. He says, I'm a fan of Dr. Peter McCullough. He has much to offer in his recent thoughtful and informed newsletter entitled Academic Medicine Covering Up COVID-19 Vaccine Cardiac Arrests especially deserves your thoughtful attention. He says you can follow the link that he includes in the article to see it for yourself. As you will see, his subject is a conspiracy to suppress the truth. Now, he says, because I'm keen for you to read it, I am obliged to point out a problem with the way in which one term is used. And that term is self-evident. It occurs in the subtitle, Dr. Jane Orient Reviews Perfidious Conspiracy to Suppress the Self-Evident. Now, this isn't just nitpicking. This is actually a very constructive bit of criticism. As Dr. McCullough makes clear in his newsletter, the problem is the suppression of data on vaccine-induced sudden death. Do you see the problem? Okay, here's the dictionary definition of self-evident, requiring no proof or explanation. And here's the definition of evidence, the data on which a judgment or conclusion may be based. So, evident truths and self-evident truths are different kinds of truth. The evidence for the truth of a statement can be overwhelming, but no accumulation of evidence makes it become a self-evident truth. So a self-evident truth doesn't depend on evidence. For example, DNA analysis can provide overwhelming evidence that the woman who raised me is my biological mother. But that evidence does not make it self-evident. Here's a self-evident truth involving me and my mother. If my mother had never been born, neither would I have been born. See how that works? So why do I simply not pass this matter over or pass over this matter of terminology without comment, you may ask? Well, he says, it's not because I'm keen to criticize the newsletter. On the contrary, he says, I want you to read it and even to consider subscribing to Dr. McCullough's newsletter. But because a proper understanding of self-evident truth is essential to understanding the American idea and its proper use must be defended. This is what really grabbed me when I saw this article. 
Now, he says, when Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and when the founders everywhere in their writings and speeches made the same declaration, they meant for us and for the world to understand that those truths require no proof. Departing somewhat from an imperfection in my dictionary's definition, the founders dedicated themselves to explaining those truths. Their declaration that it is self-evidently true that you and I have unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness astonished the world and laid the foundation for America's greatness. I mean, that makes sense, right? The founders' confidence that these truths are self-evident is deeply rooted in in the profound yet easily understood philosophy of a great philosopher who was their common contemporary. All it takes to join the founders in that understanding is common sense. As in, uh, yes, Thomas Paine, common sense. I'll come back to this article just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So yeah, we're having a little discussion here on things that are self-evident versus uh, things that are not self-evident. And this is important because you cannot understand why the, fra- why the framers of the Constitution, why the founders of this nation took the stance they did to separate themselves from Britain, fought a revolutionary war to accomplish that, and uh, then you know established you know, a constitutional republic. Now, going back to this article, and again, this is an article from Robert Curry, published on AmericanThinker.com. He apparently wrote a book called Common Sense Nation, and he says in the chapter on the Declaration of Independence, I write, in order to understand the need of the, understand the Declaration's use of self-evident, we first need to understand, or first need to turn to the thought of a philosopher in the Scottish Enlightenment, a philosopher by the name of Thomas Reed. Uh, Reed made self-evident truths the foundation of his philosophy, the philosophy of common sense realism. Common sense is the human faculty by by means of which we can grasp self-evident truths. Consequently, common sense is the power that makes human understanding possible. Now, the founders declared that by our common sense, we can know these truths for ourselves, that we do do not need to depend on any evidence tradition, the pronouncement of religious authorities, or any other source from outside. Once we understand them, we know that they are true. And understanding self-evident truths and unalienable rights makes virtually everything about the American idea perfectly clear. I thought that was a particularly powerful way to put that. So let's talk next about uh, about the uh, First Amendment. I've got an article that I'd like to share with you. Uh, This is from uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano. And it's going to take me just one second here to to pull this one up because unfortunately there is a paywall that is trying to cut me off here. There we go. This is is published in the Washington Times. And it's about uh, a raid on a Kansas weekly newspaper that raises some very troubling concerns. Judge Napolitano says, when freedom of speech and freedom of the press die, it will happen by a thousand small cuts. So I guess last week, in the 1900-person town of Marion, Kansas, all five of the town's police officers were summoned to work because of an urgent need. 
They were ordered by their chief to execute a search warrant immediately, which they did. Now, the cops broke into a small company, seized its computers and servers, and also the personal devices of all employees. And when the police learned that the owner of the company was home, they went there and broke into his house. They ransacked his computer. They took his computer, or they ransacked the house, rather. They took his computer, server, and checkbook, and so terrified his 98-year-old mother that the next day she died. I know, this this sounds like, how, how could I believe this? So who were these threats to civilization that they were stripped of all human decency and the federally mandated protection from police raids? Well, it was a small-town newspaper. And what was this all about? Okay, I hope you're sitting down. It was about a restaurant review. Yeah. Uh, And how scurrilous was the review? Well, it was never published. But the restaurant owner wanted to strike back at a reporter who discovered that the restaurateur, though holding herself out as a municipal, municipal paragon while applying for a liquor license, had a DWI conviction. Now, she told police the only way the reporter could have learned of her DWI conviction was by stealing her identity, pretending to be her, looking up her own driving record, and then writing about it. Now, until the judge who authorized this homicidal madness releases the affidavit that the police submitted to her in order to obtain the search warrant, Judge Napolitano says, we won't know precisely what the judge knew, but what we do know is that DWI records in Kansas are public, and anyone can look them up. And we do know that all government officials involved in this escapade took an oath to uphold the U.S. Constitution and all laws written pursuant to it. And none of them did so. So here's the backstory. The First Amendment reads, in part, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Now, this iconic language was written not to grant the freedom of speech or of the press, but to restrain the federal government from interfering with it. We all enjoy from our dignity as human beings the right to think as we wish and say what we think and publish what we say. From and after the enactment of the 14th Amendment, federal and state courts have uniformly interpreted the Congress shall make no law language to apply to all government. Thus, FBI agents and local police, presidents and members of school boards, Congress and the armed services are all bound to protect the freedom of speech and are expressly prohibited from interfering with it. In order to underscore the unique role played by the press in our once-free society, Congress enacted the Privacy Protection Act of 1980. Now, this recognizes that the First Amendment expressly and uniquely views the press in America as the eyes and ears of the public. Now, this legislative determination was made shortly after the Supreme Court issued its ruling in the Pentagon Papers case. In that case, the late great Daniel Ellsberg a civilian employee of the Pentagon, stole thousands of pages of secret documents about the Vietnam War and shared them with reporters from the New York Times and the Washington Post. Those documents revealed that President Lyndon Johnson and his senior generals had been lying to the American public about the status of the war. When the Nixon administration sought and obtained an injunction against the publication of the papers, the Supreme Court intervened and held that the matters material to the public interest are fair game for publication, no matter how they were acquired. He goes on to say, Thus the Times, the Post, and their reporters were immune from civil or criminal liability for the acquisition and publication of the papers. Ellsberg was prosecuted for theft, in his case, espionage, as the stolen papers contained national defense information. 
but the case against him was dismissed when the trial judge learned that the FBI had broken into his psychiatrist's office and stole his medical records during his trial. In response to all this, Congress made it the law of the land in 1980 that journalists and their publishers are not subject to police raids in the United States. He says if the government, local, state, or federal, wants information from a journalist or a publisher, it must obtain a subpoena from a grand jury and serve it civilly on the custodian of the records that the government seeks. This gives the journalist and the publisher 10 days to challenge the subpoena, and it also preserves the institutional integrity of the press. So the raid on the Marion County record is particularly reprehensible because the data sought is all digital. Thus, instead of stealing cell phones and servers, a simple subpoena to the computer service provider of the newspaper and its employees would have sufficed. Now, it turns out that the police chief who ordered the Gestapo-like tactics in middle America was the subject of an unflattering series of articles in the record, which, like the piece about the restaurant and its liquor license, was never published. Freedom of thought and speech and the press are not only essential to our form of government, they're essential to our humanity and our happiness. Judge Napolitano says, We fought a revolution of secession from England so that we might be able to pursue happiness without a government permission slip. We adopted a constitution to keep the government off our backs and out of our living rooms and bank books so that we might pursue happiness. And he says we cannot be fully happy or even human if we can be silenced or frightened by the government and its jackboot tactics. Those tactics chill expressive freedoms. Even in small-town America, power corrupts and liberty perishes. Again, this is Judge Andrew Napolitano, and I will have a link to this in my show notes at the Brian Hyde Show dot com. This is for August eighteenth, twenty twenty three. Doesn't that just send a little shiver up your spine? And I know there's some who may be thinking, "Oh boy, here we go. It's hate the cops, right?" Nope. But I am going to say those who reflexively back the blue, you might want to consider that uh, there are th- sometimes. Where, you know, your individual local policeman may be a really decent person. But the things that police are being asked to do. Or the things that people will try to justify police doing. Sometimes they really are indefensible. What then? Do we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, you don't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Because in this case, you know, it's, it's a little newspaper the Marion County record, you know, that that's far from you, right? This couldn't possibly affect you. No. The proper attitude is, hey, if it can be done to them, it can be done to me. Well, I don't agree with the uh, the uh, the Marion County record. I don't think that, you know, I, I like anything that they publish. That's fine. But what you allow government to do to other people, including people you don't like, can just as easily be done to you. I know this is one of those uh, those ethical tests that uh, that comes to all people who learn about freedom and really you know are put to the test of how committed am I to freedom? Do I love liberty more than I hate my supposed enemies? And for people who cannot answer that question in the affirmative, yes, I love liberty more than I hate my enemies. They will lose their liberty when they cheer government doing things to other people just because well that person's unpopular or I don't like them. 
you got to be willing to stand up for the rights of everybody, including those you dis- disagree with. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I have saved the most controversial article that I will share with you this week for today. All right, last segment of the week, last article of the week. And uh, when you hear about it, you'll understand why I've saved this one for last. But uh, with all the historical revisionism that's going on and, you know, the purging of history and rewriting and erasing of history, I thought this was a very interesting essay by H.W. Crocker III. This was published on the American Spectator. And the title is Robert E. Lee, The Man for These Hard Times. Subtitle, The Former Confederate General Should Serve as an Example to Conservatives. Now, the article begins by noting, if Donald Trump were imprisoned and then found dead, hanging in his cell, his uh, rep-striped tie serving as a noose, would you be surprised? The author here says, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. The Justice Department would redouble its commitment to protect democracy, promising to imprison climate change deniers, pro-life protesters, and attendees of Latin masses. And the media would be a chortle saying that, well, Trump had it coming. The arc of the moral universe bends against Republicans, and thus that it ever was with fascists witness Hitler in the bunker. Now he says, it seems clear whatever else the future holds, we are headed for hard times. The last president held in prison was Jefferson Davis, though he survived, faced no trial. By the way, that's a story in and of itself. Why didn't they put him on trial? It's because if if <laughs> if it were put out there, the facts were inconvenient enough, and, and I know this is going to hurt some people who are you know, still kind of fighting the Civil War in their minds, but the South had every right to secede. That's what would have been found. That's why they didn't put him on trial. Nonetheless, he was released after two years in chains and eventually retired to Beauvoir House in Biloxi, Mississippi. Now, Davis, a West Point graduate, combat veteran, and planter, had served as a U.S. Senator, Secretary of War, apparently a very good one, and a member of Congress before he became President of the Confederate States of America. But when the defeated South looked to its exemplar, it did not look to him. It looked to the Confederacy's highest-ranking general, Robert E. Lee. As Pulitzer Prize-winning historian James McPherson wrote in his celebrated book, The Battle Cry of Freedom, Lee was the greatest tactician and charismatic commander of the Civil War, as well as a gentleman in the classic sense of that word and a worthy representation of the Virginia gentry that did so much to shape the early history of the United States. The eventual commander of Queen Victoria's army and Lee's contemporary, Field Marshal Viscount Garnet Wolseley, remarked, I have met many of the great men of my time, but Lee alone impressed me with the feeling that I was in the presence of a man who was cast in a grander mold and made of different and finer metal than all other men. End quote. Another great Englishman, Winston Churchill, later noted that Lee was one of the noblest Americans who ever lived and one of the greatest captains known to the annals of war. So naturally, the left has been busy recently tearing down his statues and disparaging his name as part of its iconoclastic fight against the uh, against patriotic American history. By the way, they just tore down a monument to his horse, Traveler, just, just a few weeks back. We must erase him! But Lee and his reputation have endured hard times before. 
Think of Lee's position after the war. He was a man stripped of his citizenship, unable to vote, nearly destitute. His career of military service and carefully harbored savings were in tatters, and it was possible he would be tried for treason. He had suffered the premature death of a daughter, a daughter-in-law, two grandchildren, and countless colleagues and friends. His home was confiscated and its lands transformed into a cemetery. His native state was under federal occupation, with an imposed military governor as military district number one. One quarter of the draft-age white male population of the South lay dead from battle or disease. An estimated two-thirds of the South's assessed wealth had been obliterated. The temper of the times was such that Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio wrote in a letter to Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts that perhaps if the newly freed slaves slew one half of their oppressors, that would teach the remaining Southern whites just who was in charge now. The radical Republicans intent on reconstructing the South as they saw fit. So Robert E. Lee had four goals after the war. Care for his family, rebuild Virginia and the South, assist in the reconciliation of a forcibly reunited union, and accomplish something useful for the good of mankind and the glory of God. By the way, that last part, that's his words. Now, he was given that opportunity when he was offered the presidency of Washington College, now Washington and Lee University. At first, however, he demurred, saying, being excluded from the terms of amnesty in the proclamation of the president of the U.S. and an object of censure to a portion of the country. He thought it probable that his occupation of the position of president at the, at the college might draw upon the college a feeling of hostility. The college board thought otherwise, and they convinced Lee to take the post. Now, the school was impoverished, as the South was generally, and a wreck suffering from the sack and plunder of hostile soldiers, with only four remaining professors and 40 students. But as Lee had built an army virtually from scratch, so too he rebuilt a college from the ashes, one that would become a university shortly after his death. To the school's classical curriculum, he added courses in engineering, farming, commerce, modern languages, journalism, and law, with additional plans for creating departments of astronomy and medicine. He wanted his graduates to become Christian gentlemen, and part of that was insisting that they govern themselves because virtue is worth but little that requires constant watching and removal from temptation. As he said, we have no printed rules. We have but one rule here, and it is, and it is that every student must be a gentleman. His goal was to train a new generation of leaders who would rebuild the South. Now, Lee reverted to his military training following his Confederate service and for the most part, uh, and refrained for the most part, from involving himself in politics. But when pressed on his political beliefs, Lee would tell people that he had no difficulty accepting the abolition of slavery. As he told Lord Acton, that is an event that has long been sought, although in a different way, namely by moral suasion rather than by the uh, arbitrament of war. And none of it has been more earnestly desired than by citizens of Virginia. But he also believed Southerners who had served the Confederacy deserved the same rights as any other citizens. And that if he could vote, he would do so for the most conservative, eligible candidates for Congress and the legislature. Candidates who believed in the old republic of sovereign states and the limited powers granted to the federal government by the Constitution. Though he was disinclined to speak of the war and he wrote no memoir, Lee was sometimes sparked to defend his Confederate service. When a friend told him he was working exceedingly hard in his civilian job because he was so impatient to make up for the time he lost in the army, 
Lee upbraided him immediately. Mr. Humphreys, Lee said, however long you live and whatever you accomplish, you will find that the time you spent in the Confederate Army was the most profitably spent portion of your life. Never again speak of having lost time in the Army. Now, above all, Robert E. Lee was a man of duty and a man who trusted in divine providence. As Lee told a pastor who could not give up thinking that the late war might have been won if certain decisions had been made at key points, he said, yes, all that is very sad and might be cause for self-reproach, but that we are conscious that we have humbly tried to do our duty. We may, therefore, with calm satisfaction, trust in God and leave the results to Him. Now here the author, H.W. Crocker III, says, that strikes me as good advice for conservatives. It's one of the reasons, by the way, why I wanted to share this article with you, my listener, because I think that's, that's very solid advice. Not that you need to sit on your hands or, you know, bury your head in the sand, but that advice to trust in God and leave the results to Him, it's very, very well-founded. And so, H.W. Crocker III says, In the dark days ahead, we must work hard, do our duty, keep the faith, and trust that God will turn all things right. During some of the worst throes of Reconstruction, Lee reminded his son Rooney that duty demanded that all earnestly work to extract what good we can out of the evil that hangs over our dear land. Let Lee be our guide in Christian stoicism. Now again, I know there are, there are people who are still very emotionally invested in what we, we were taught to call the Civil War. It was actually either the war between the states, or I actually prefer the term Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. I don't wish to refight that, uh, that conflict, but I do want to point out that uh, men like Robert E. Lee, when faced with the choice of joining the Union, which was trying to prevent... The, the southern states from leaving or standing up for his state and its uh, self-determination, he chose his state. And it wasn't because he was a fan of slavery. He was very much on the record as having opposed slavery before. I guess if you want to learn more about this guy, woke history books or woke programs aren't going to tell you very much. You know, he left a lot of letters and a lot of personal writings I guess we could always avail ourselves of those and see if maybe they could tell us a little bit about what made this guy tick. I promise you this, those who do so will see that uh, he really was a man of incredible character. This is The Brian Hyde Show.